Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk once again about EU-China relations and the big question about whether Europe is ready to compete in today's new geopolitical competition. I'm very happy to welcome an all-star cast to this podcast. First up is ECFR's co-chair, the former Prime Minister of Sweden, the former Foreign Minister of Sweden, the one and only Carl Bildt, joining us from a terrace somewhere in Croatia. Also down the line, we have Agata Kratz, who is an Associate Director at the Rhodium Group, an expert on EU-China relations, who in fact has a, a secret past working for ECFR at some point. And finally, from another beach somewhere in Germany, I hope, Janka Ertl, who's the head of ECFR's Asia program and our in-house expert on all matters Chinese. Thank you very much to all of you for joining. At our annual council meeting, Janka and Carl discussed EU-China relations with the vice president of the European Commission, Margrethe Vestager. And we're going to start off with a, a brief clip from some of her remarks during that debate. If we find that foreign subsidies are coming in to the Union to the detriment of, uh, of European interests, uh, that be jobs, that be uh, competition uh, and the level playing field. Because if it's security, uh, issues of public order, here we have the screening instrument of foreign direct investment. So basically, right now we are sort of filling the toolbox, realizing, of course, that you cannot just have hammers. If you want to build a, a house, then you need hammers, screwdrivers, saws, uh, some of them very, very efficient tools. And then at the same time, pushing, of course, for reciprocity, because part of the toolbox should also be that when it's public procurement, we don't want foreign subsidies either. Uh, foreign businesses welcome to, to compete in public procurements, but it, again, it cannot be that European businesses will have to compete against bidders who have foreign taxpayers uh, picking up their bills. So it's, I think, about time being much more assertive and recognizing sort of the competitive strength uh, of European businesses being able to compete on their own uh, merits, while at the same time saying, well, now we want to see this competition at its full and not any, any risk of that being rigged uh, because of foreign subsidies. Margrethe Vestager talked about filling the European Union's toolbox for dealing with China. And it certainly seems to be a moment when COVID, as well as the impact on globalisation and attitudes in the White House, are forcing Europe to grasp some new geopolitical realities and to think through what that means, not just for the sort of classic foreign policy toolkit, but what are the geopolitical aspects of Europe's internal, domestic, market-orientated policies. Why don't we start with, with you, Carl, because in that discussion, you talked about the need for Europe to develop some offensive tools. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, in the discussion, there was quite a lot of focus also on the defensive measures that are now taken. That has to do with investment screening, and that has to do with a couple of trade measures or whatever is under discussion at the moment. I underline the need to think long term and be somewhat offensive. We are not going to win technology or trade competition with China by being only defensive. We have to be offensive in the sense of strengthening the competitive position of the industry, 
of European technology, of European economy in general terms. And that, I think, has to be the long-term approach to China. China is not going to go away. It might well be that China runs into heavy economic headwinds. I think that's highly likely. It might be that its political system comes into a more difficult environment in the sense of not being up to what is needed to guide a modern country. But China is going to be there as uh, the biggest economy of the world, perhaps in a couple of decades, twice as big as the EU economy. Right. So we're going to look at some of those other foreign policy and, and domestic issues within China. But before we do that, why don't we stay a bit more on this whole question about the EU toolkit? Agata, you did a very interesting study where you looked at what tools are already in the EU box, which ones are missing. What's your kind of typology of, of what kind of tools are going to be required for the EU as it deals with a, a growing and more competitive and more self-assertive China? Now, I'm glad you pointed to that story, which is called Beyond Investment Screening. And the key finding from that study was that the issue and the problems we've got economically with China are systemic. And because they're systemic, we need a systemic answer. And so, you know, we might or we might want to define and, and point to all of the tools in the toolbox, but the toolbox needs to be a systemic response to problems emerging from the Chinese economy and distortion emerging from the Chinese economy. Systemic in many ways. It needs to be cross issues. It needs to address problems we've got with subsidized investment, subsidized competition or distorted competition, distorted trade, public procurement or IP linkages. It needs to be pan-European, so systemic from a European point of view as well. It needs to be cross institutions. It's not enough anymore uh, that just DigiComp or DigiTrade alone in their silos, so to speak take measures, uh, they need to take measures together and they need to take measures uh, with a systemic intent to counter problems in the Chinese economy. And it needs to be OECD aligned because whatever we do will have an impact on our colleagues and governments in the OECD and will be stronger if we do it all together, of course. I agree with Carl very much so that we need also to have a defensive and offensive toolbox in defense competition regime, investment screening, export controls. And the white paper that just came out was actually a very, very good point, starting point here. Offensive in terms of understanding how and how we support our industries and how we support especially technologies of the future. So Janka, you've also been talking a lot and writing a lot about this systemic challenge. What are the other elements that you think um, need to be part of the toolkit from an EU perspective if we are going to have this systemic competition? We are being asked a lot at the moment uh, whether Europe's approach to China is changing, whether it's really changing now. And therefore, I think the offensive-defensive argument is very helpful in explaining that. Basically, what we are seeing from Brussels is these two tracks. And on that one track, on the defensive track, you have all these measures that have been named already. And those are moving ahead with like normal EU speed and sometimes even faster than normal EU speed, I would say, which is quite surprising at times. The other track is a bit more difficult because it incorporates all the political challenges as well. It's not just about economic offensive, but it's also about how do we deal with Hong Kong? How do we deal with the situation in Xinjiang? And therefore, we are. It, it, it's a bit more troubling for us. There is one tool in our toolbox that Carl and Agata haven't named so far that I think can be offensive, but in a very positive way, in a way that kind of creates the framework within which we want to conduct our policies, in which we want to live as Europeans. And that's the connectivity agenda that the EU 
already has listed as an important tool in its toolbox, but that had been quite orphaned after the change to the new commission. Now we need to kind of refocus on that agenda because with proactive connectivity policy, we can actually change the environment around us and along the countries that matter to China for enlarging its influence. So I think in that sense, connectivity policies are the systemic answer to what Agatha was saying, where we can actually shape norms, values, standards in, in third countries along the Belt and Road, but also in our immediate neighborhood and within the EU. One of the coincidences about all this is that these issues are coming to the fore just as Germany takes up the presidency of the European Union and Germany is responsible for about as much trade with China as all the other member states combined. In fact, even more, I think, now that Brexit has happened. So it brings a lot of these issues very much to the fore. Angela Merkel had this plan of, of trying to create a new format with China and having a meeting of all the, the different heads of state and government together with the Chinese in Leipzig in the middle of the EU presidency. That is now not going to happen in person. But what do you think is going to be done during the, the presidency? How able is Germany actually to push these things forward, given how dependent a lot of big German companies are on China? I think it's very important to understand that while China was at the top of the agenda in the initial plan, it has moved down various, various uh, kind of steps on the ladder in terms of importance now. But a lot of the issues that are at stake and that are on the top of the agenda, such as economic recovery, the Green Deal, the question of how to kind of shape the multilateral order now after the pandemic, these all are inherently linked to our China policy. So it's not so much about the EU-China bilateral agenda now, but it's about where China figures in all of these different elements now in these aspects. But of course, it is much more difficult for Germany to deal with these questions because it has a much greater interlinkage with the Chinese economy than all the other European member states. So what we are seeing is that that some I've heard in, in some conversations, especially from Eastern Europe, well, maybe we need to help Germany kind of find its own voice and find a stronger voice when it comes to China. And I think there is a lot of truth to it because Germany also can only within the EU context really stand up to the challenges that it now faces coming from China, especially to, to the German economy. But what we are going to see is that the German council presidency, they really would like to host the Leipzig version of the summit during the council presidency still. So there's conversations about later in this year, whether it's then possible to do it in person. I'm a bit skeptical whether it will be possible to actually be held, but it's still on the agenda to do a bilateral format of that sort. And Carl, you've tried to get the EU to be united on lots of different issues in the past. In a way, China is the sort of classic issue which one would have thought would be very difficult to unite around, given that all the member states are starting from that very different sort of political, economic structures. Traditionally, there's been a lot of competition between member states to have great bilateral relationships with China. It's been a bit like the transatlantic relationship, which is very hard for Brussels to, to get much of a handle on. How much hope do you think there is of Europeans really coming together? And how, if you were advising Angela Merkel on, on what she could do within the German presidency, what would you be counselling her to do? Well, for the German presidents, I don't think we should have expectations too high in this particular respect. I, I, I know, as was pointed out, that Berlin still hopes that there will be the possibility of having some sort of summit meeting. I think it was important and interesting to note that the Leipzig meeting was called off not by the Germans, but by the Chinese. 
they evidently felt that they were not ready or it might be that they were not prepared to listen to sort of Hong Kong complaints all the time, which they, with some justification, feared was going to be the case. So the effort to unite EU and China has to be somewhat more medium term. It was easier in the past. What we've seen in the last few years is that there have been a couple of countries that have been extremely reluctant to criticize China. It took a long time for the EU to react on the South China Sea issues. And it has been virtually impossible to have strong statements on human rights. That's Hungary and a couple of others that are extremely reluctant. It's uh, strange enough, you might, it is from Germany that the impetus to a new policy first came in the beginning of last year with a document coming out of the Federation of German Industry. And what has happened since then is, of course, that we have the Americans coming very big on the scene. And we have the beginning of a dialogue across the Atlantic on China. I understand the U.S. National Security Advice is in Paris as we speak, initiating discussions with a group of European countries on China policy. So there's a lot of pressure on coming up with a policy. I think it's going to take some time. I think it's going to be more difficult than was the case a couple of years ago. But I think it's absolutely imperative that it happens. So we can't talk about EU-China relations without talking about the 5G issue. It is, in a way, the, the, kind of the, the most visible part of this bigger technology war which the European Union finds itself in the middle of. I get that. To what extent do you think that we are in the middle of a technology war? Some people say that it's wrong to see this as a, a war between China and the US, given that the only alternative on 5G to Huawei is, are, in fact, two European companies, Nokia and Ericsson. Where do you see the EU finding its place in this tech war? I don't think we're in the middle of a technology war. I think we're at the start of a technology war. And I think a lot of people focus on 5G, hoping that once the 5G issue is quote-unquote solved, that things are going to get back to normal. But actually, I think 5G is one of a multitude of technologies that are going to come under increased scrutiny from the US and especially are going to, are going to put European companies, in particular policymakers as well, uh, in a difficult situation. I would see it in a much, much broader scope and view and lens. Much of it was happening before the Trump administration, actually, with a lot of the tech war even uh, being brewed in the couple of years before 2016, Trump's election, and it's going to continue even if Biden is elected. The problem for EU companies is understanding how that hurts them, and it does. A lot of what the US is doing at the moment, of course, has extraterritorial kind of uh, scope and intent, certainly, be it investment screening or export controls. Uh, and it could also kind of spill over into financial decoupling, even with tech aspects and financial aspects uh, mixed together. So very, very, that's a very important thing. Do you want to explain that a bit more clearly? Because I think Marco Rubio and some people in Congress have been looking at trying to force American banks to restrict their financing to China. But what would that actually look like in practice? Well, in practice, that would be doing what's been done for investment, doing what's been done with trade on the financial sphere, meaning that the U.S. government would be reducing as much as possible financial interlinkages between the U.S. and China. That would mean lesser U.S. investment, especially pension funds and uh, big investment funds, investment, portfolio investments into China uh, and the other way back, diminishing Chinese investments or Chinese listing on U.S. stock exchange, on U.S. markets. And as that happens... Uh, a lot of the linkages, financial linkages that also existed between EU, US or EU and China uh, will also come under scrutiny. So, you know, we're at the beginning of a tech war, certainly, and also at the beginning of a much broader, probably decoupling move, even if the, in the financial sphere. 
So, Carl, how would that impact on Europeans? What do you think Europeans can do about those sorts of moves? Because it, it does mean potentially that the whole nature of globalization changes dramatically. There's a risk of that. And I think we'll be impacted very severely across a broad range of issues. Uh, 5G, as I pointed out, is in the focus at the moment, but it's only one aspect of it. It's been going on for quite some time. We have had the issue of internet governance, which was very much in focus a couple of years ago with a clash between the rival philosophies of, let's say, the Atlantic world and China. That issue is certainly not resolved. We have a huge battle over different sorts of internet and technology and digital standards happening inside the ITU, which is really China versus the rest, although China lining up a couple of supporters. We have at the moment, which has been accelerating during all public attention at least, has been accelerating during the last few months, a battle for control of semiconductors and the advanced semiconductors. It's semiconductors are everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And uh, that is a commodity, let's phrase it like that, that is really dominated by East Asia, Taiwan, South Korea, where the Chinese are now investing a huge amount of money to get up to speed because the Americans are trying to cut them off from advanced semiconductors. Europe rather weak. Uh, there's a Dutch firm that is very critical for the manufacturing infrastructure technology of it, but otherwise Europe is enormously dependent upon semiconductors being imported from uh, other countries. How does that set of issues, which you've work, been working on a lot, Janka, kind of go into the bigger questions about how the world is going to work? There's been all sorts of debates about the future of multilateralism and Europeans always try and have a balanced portfolio where we might have some difficult systemic rivalry in some areas, but climate change is usually mentioned as a possible space where um, we could work with the Chinese in a more cooperative space. Is that still the case? I, I note that last week on, on the 7th of July, Franz Timmermans, the EU's climate chief, hosted the fourth ministerial on climate action a video conference, both together with the, the environment ministers of Canada and of China, Jonathan Wilkinson and, and Huang Wenchu. He seemed to think that. Um, there might be some scope for working in a more cooperative way on this transition, both to to low carbon and climate resilient economies. But the EU-China climate relationship has not always been particularly straightforward. That's true. I would, before I come to climate, let me add just two little points on the tech and the, the kind of EU unity question, because I think this is very, very closely linked to each other. All of these topics are. On the 5G and on the on the tech question, I think it's really important to point out that, yes, Europe may seem weaker from the outside as not having these huge companies that produce semiconductors, but it has a crucial place in the supply chain with various European companies being in monopoly or oligopoly positions within that really sophisticated supply chain. So we shouldn't underplay the Europeans' position in the tech sector as well. And the second point would be, that in the in the question of you know how unified is Europe around these questions, we have really interesting new data from ECFR's Coalition Explorer that shows a huge degree of convergence around the China question in the member states, with a basically a pragmatic turn all over the place. We have seen in our unlock data earlier this month that the perception of China has worsened in a lot of the places, and we've seen in our solidarity tracker that the mask diplomacy of, of China has backfired. So I think we have interesting data points that. Show show that there is a good moment of opportunity for EU unity on China questions now. On the climate question, 
I think you rightly pointed out that in this whole question of, you know, are we competitors, are we rivals, or are we partners, it is often just kind of said that, oh, yes, and but we are partners on climate change because we need China for climate change. Well, that is obviously a truism, uh, and it doesn't take much to know and to understand that obviously we need an ambitious Chinese policy to protect the climate. But when we look at the fact, then CO2 emissions are on the rise. Job creation is currently more important than climate protection in China. Coal-fired power plants are the energy source of choice uh, to boost the Chinese economy at this very crucial juncture, especially in the provinces. So the ambition in multilateral settings is very low. So I think we have to reconsider whether we are kind of providing a carte blanche to China and saying, but continuously saying, um, well, we are partners on this and we will partner on that in the climate field. I think it is in China's interest to protect the planet, but it's important for us. And therefore, we should not be happy about paper commitments or the willingness of Chinese officials to show up at important events. That's not enough anymore. China has to start delivering and we have to push harder. What do you think we can do on that front, Carl? Do you think that a border adjustment tax might start focusing Chinese attention? I think the border adjustment tax, if that comes into being, will be a hugely difficult but important thing. I found it interesting the last few days when Joe Biden presented his uh, economic program with a sort of fairly heavy dose of economic nationalism, bordering on mercantilism, by the way. But one of the issues that he put on the table was a border adjustment tax. And if we can get an agreement between the Europeans and the Americans and a couple of others, perhaps the Indians, then, of course, this could be a very significant instrument to pressure China. But it can't be done unilaterally used by the Europeans because then we enter trade war with Americans or the Indians or the Africans or whatever to the detriment of the global economy. But if we can have a global alliance on that in order to get China better on board. I mean, it's true that Chinese are not meeting their commitments. Their commitments were not particularly extensive anyhow. But in the run-up to COP26, towards the end of next year, with the UK sharing it, by the way, and the UK will have a critical role in trying to forge some sort of compromise, we must recognize that nearly a third of the global emissions are coming from China. So there's no solution without China. So, Carl, you talked about Joe Biden and the idea of some sort of transatlantic alliance against China in the climate sphere. To what extent do you think the European and American interests are compatible going forward? I mean, obviously, when it comes to the critique of China's model of political economy, there's a lot of overlap between the things that worry Americans and worry Europeans, whether it's about subsidies or IP theft or the fact that the Chinese market is very close to to foreign companies. But at the same time, traditionally, most Europeans don't share the same focus on American primacy in the Indo-Pacific and are worried about getting sucked into uh, battles over atolls and rocks in um, distant parts of the world. And it's also obviously clear that there's a huge difference, at least in rhetoric and in diplomatic style between what one would expect from a Biden presidency and what we're currently experiencing with Donald Trump. But how aligned structurally do you think European and American interests are going forward? That remains to be seen, because I don't think the Americans have really defined clearly what they want to do with China. Uh, do they want to ch- change China for the better, or do they want to just stop China from racing? I mean, there's a tendency in the latter direction in a lot of the US debate. I think that's probably unrealistic. Uh, China, as I said earlier, might run into problems, but it might run into problems by its own making, primarily. I don't think we can affect that very much. The European approach would be to sort of handle China, 
try to modify its behavior, uh, try to, if possible, change it for the better, or at least counteract those policies that we think are bad for China and bad for the world. But the American debate is swinging back and forth between sort of stop China rising or change the rise of China. And until that is clarified, it's going to be somewhat difficult, I think. One of the big effects of the COVID crisis is increasingly on China's relations with, with other parts of the world. We have heard often on this podcast about the this enormous Belt and Road Initiative, the way that China is becoming a core part of the infrastructure of what vast swathes of the planet, particularly in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America and other countries. I get that. I think you've been doing some research on the effect of COVID-19 on China's Belt and Road Initiative. Can you give us a, a short overview of what you think the initial effects have been? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what we're seeing already in the number is that actually pre-COVID, the Belt and Road Initiative was slowing down. That's an important thing to note. Uh, It was slowing down for a number of reasons, because recipient countries were growing critical of the patterns and conditions on Chinese lending. But it was also slowing down because I think parts of the governments in Beijing were realizing that some of that lending had been done unsustainably. So pre-COVID, we were already seeing a slowing down of the initiative. And with COVID kicking in, what's happening is that a lot of the past lending that had been extended is coming under issues, problems, and financial pass. And so what COVID is doing at the moment, kind of in the short term, is increasing the number of debt renegotiations that we're seeing across the world. We already have almost 10 countries that have started renegotiating their debt with China and huge amounts at that. We had done accounting of how much of the Belt and Road Initiative had already gone into trouble pre-COVID. And we had found that almost as much as one in five dollars that China had spent on the initiative and overseas had run into trouble. And so we're going to see that number increase dramatically with COVID, the difficulties that emerging markets are running into. And so uh, what that means for the longer run is that having seen that surge, kind of tsunami of new debt renegotiation, it is probably okay to assume or okay to hope that Chinese overseas lending, Belt and Road lending will change in shape, probably with fewer projects, fewer loans. Uh, more sustainable ones and probably more concessionality, grants, kind of more smaller scale levers, which is a good thing for emerging markets because uh, they're obviously running into trouble at the moment because they took on too much debt thinking that it was going to be okay to repay. Right. We're running out of time now. I suppose we do need to talk about Hong Kong and because that is the, the topic which is most discussed at the moment. The German foreign minister Heiko Maas has urged his colleagues to try and find a common EU position on the Chinese security law for Hong Kong. And there are discussions at the moment about um, what that means, both for the initial response, but also what it could mean for the wider economic and trade relationship between the rest of the European Union and Hong Kong and China going forwards. Carl, what do you think the response to Hong Kong should be? How tough can and will the EU and its member states be in in response to this very troubling development there? Well, I have argued that what we should do, we and we, Brussels, should do is to link up quite a lot with London, have something called Brexit underway, which is a painful process in itself. But we need a partnership with the UK on foreign policy issues in the future. And here the UK has an amount of expertise on the legalities involved in the basic law, the handovers, everything that sort of paved the way for the present situation, that is obviously superior to what we have in EU countries. So I think we should take initiative and sort of link up with London and say we want to have common action with you 
and perhaps even leave the policy initiative to them and be prepared to follow an amount of lead from their side. The Americans, of course, are discussing, as usual, different sort of sanctions direct against Hong Kong. Well, the problem with that is, of course, that that tends to play into Chinese hands because that takes away certain privileges that Hong Kong has at the moment, saying that it's not as independent from Beijing as we would hoped it would be in terms of its autonomy. But by taking those away, those privileges, we force them into an even greater dependence on Beijing. It might be marginal, but anyhow, going on the wrong direction. What we could do and should do, but going back to the London point, is very much uh, try to support individuals, support human rights, and support those that are standing up for the human rights in, in Hong Kong. There might be limits to what we can do, but I mean, we should explore and extend those limits as far as we can. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of an absolutely fascinating discussion. We've got one thing left to do with this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Janka, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, summer is for spy novels. Uh, I'm very strict with that one. Uh, and so I would suggest to read David Ignatius's new book called The Paladin. It's about disinformation and deep fakes and how that kind of interferes with the world as how we know it. It has a little stint in Taiwan, so there's a little Asia element to it as well. And I can highly recommend it. Okay, what about you, Agata? What's on your bookshelf at the moment? So it's not a book, it's actually a podcast. And it's um, an episode of the New York Times Daily podcast that I listened over the weekend, listened to over the weekend. And it's called Counting the Infected. And it talks about COVID and COVID numbers and data and the difficulty to put together data sets on new events and new trends. And I think we face the same China, that it's extremely important at the moment in such a politicized environment uh, to rely on data and facts. But it's also important to understand what data can and cannot tell and what stories we can ask it to tell, but need to be very, very conscious of caveats and limits of uh, relying on data only. Carl, what about you? I imagine that if uh, the past is a guide to the present, that you don't just have a book with you. You've probably got a library that you took with you uh, as you went away on holiday. Well, the David Nature's book is clearly on my list, but that's for the autumn. The summer I normally do history. So at the moment, I'm into one of my favorite books, which I read a long time ago, called The Adriatic Sea, by a British author, Englishman, more appropriately, called Harry Hodgson. It's a book published in the early 1950s, and it's an absolutely stellar account on the long-term history of everything that's happening in the Adriatic Sea. And a lot of the development of Europe and interaction with the rest of the world has been uh, mirrored here. So it's um, the past as a guide to the future. Fantastic. So we'll put links up to all of those publications on our website together with some of the wonderful things that uh, Janka Ertl and Ageta and Carl have been writing um, in recent times about Asia and China. We also put up links to the discussion which Janka chaired with Carl Bilt and Mugheta Vestager at the same place. So the website's www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, by heading to whatever platform you use to download this podcast on and giving us a five-star review and very positive rating. But for now, from Agatha Kratz, Janka Ertl, Carl Bildt and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Marlene Riedel.